Didomi is a Greek word meaning to give or has given. God gave, didomi, and out of gratitude, we give back to our neighbors and to our community, didomi. My name is Joel Beldkamp. With Christian friends working in organizations that advocate for justice and peace, we put together the Didomi podcast, where we share about the issues that we are working on. My co-host for this episode is Wissam Masalibi, who is the advocacy officer of the World Evangelical Alliance. Hello, Wissam. Hi, Joel. It's good to be co-hosting with you here in Geneva. Well, thank you for inviting me to co-host with you. This is my first time as co-host on the Didomi podcast, so I will just introduce myself briefly. I serve as the head of international communications for Christian Solidarity International. We are an organization that campaigns for religious liberty and human dignity for all people worldwide. I'm also pursuing a PhD in international history at the Graduate Institute here in Geneva, and I'm writing my thesis about the politics of Christians in Aleppo, Syria, during the 1920s and 1930s. So, let's get into the topic of our episode. On 4 August 2020, Beirut witnessed the biggest non-nuclear man-made explosion in history, which left over 200 people dead, thousands wounded, and hundreds of thousands without homes. Furthermore, Lebanon is enduring a severe and prolonged economic depression. According to the World Bank, the economic and financial crisis is likely to rank in the top 10, possibly top 3, most severe crises globally since the mid-19th century. More than half of the country's population is likely now below the poverty line. To discuss the situation in Lebanon and the church's response, we are joined from Lebanon by Wissam Nasrallah. Hello, Wissam. Hi, Joel. Wissam Nasrallah, you used to work as competitive intelligence analyst in Paris for a top-tier industrial company. You hold a master's degree in finance and strategy and an undergraduate degree in political and social studies sciences from Sciences Po Paris. And in 2017, you and your family actually relocated to Lebanon, answering God's call to work alongside the churches there. And you became the chief operations officer of the Lebanese Society for Educational and Social Development, or LSESD. So can you share with us how has life changed for you and your family in the last 12 months? First of all, thank you for uh, for hosting me on the podcast, and uh, thank you for the great job that both of you are are, are doing. Um, allow me, please, to start with a general observation. Um, since the start of the uprising in October 2019, Lebanese, us included, were, were, we were caught up with the reality of our economy. Uh, we all believed in the Lebanese exception that economic mechanisms and principles apply to all other countries except for us. And, and the wake-up call was, was brutal on, on all of us. And we, we suddenly discovered that we are a third-world country with citizens, specifically a middle-class living above its means. As a family, um, we are amongst the privileged since we, have, we still have stable jobs that we love, decent pay that partially compensates for the insane insane inflation around us and for the ridiculous devaluation of the Lebanese pound. And we thank God for that. But this is simply not the case for the majority of Lebanese. Many families are 
on a unending downward spiral to hell, a lot of people lost literally everything, especially especially those retired or about to retire who lost their lifetime savings thinking it was safely deposited at the bank. One difficult aspect for us has been to see so many people and dear friends leave, leave the country, seeking better living conditions and work opportunities. Uh, this has been, on an emotional level, very difficult. Uh, and, and those who, obviously we stayed, uh, and, and we are with those who do not have the option to leave and who are merrily surviving, hoping that the tide will be reversed sooner rather than later. But every single time, we have been proving, we have been proved wrong. And just to see people around you with no hope of change, and to see people surrender, no will to fight anymore, is is demoralizing. A, a lot of people, and we've heard this uh, uh, throughout the crisis, that the Lebanese are a resilient people, and in a sense, this is true. We are, uh, but this came at the cost of very high. Uh, complacency and and apathy. The the hardest thing, however, is, at least for us, is the feeling that we constantly need to sprint while not knowing the distance that we have to to run, not having the end in sight. Uh, It's funny, I was listening to Pink Floyd this morning and uh, something stuck up in my mind uh, is you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking. And, and one day you find 10 years have gotten behind you. And, and this is, it's, it's just this feeling of running behind something and, 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 and every time discovering that there is a new layer of difficulty, a new layer of catastrophe, a new layer of something unexpected that will happen. And in a sense, the crisis has completely changed our expectations and our standards. For example, just yesterday, uh, being able to fill up your tank with gasoline, for me, it was an achievement. I was, I was so happy about that, so excited. Something as, as simple as that. And so your priorities changed, the way you think changed, the way you uh, approach life uh, changes. Wissam, can you also share with us uh, on 4 August 2020, where you were with your family and how you personally lived through the Beirut explosion? So Sophie, my wife, and I were both at the office in Mansouri. It's a, it's a town overlooking Beirut. And she was on the phone with her parents. Uh, Sophie is French, and her parents obviously live in France. And uh, just about the time where the explosion happened, she was reassuring them that it was going to be okay in Lebanon and they shouldn't fear and worry about her. And then, boom. Everything trembled, everything shook. Uh, it, it was horrifying. We, we thought at first that it was an airstrike or, or a bombing in the building just next to us. And when we realized that it was many kilometers away in Beirut, it, it, was, it was shocking. It, it, it was a moment of, of utter horror, especially when we started seeing the first footages uh, on, on WhatsApp. Uh, instantly we started calling friends who live in Beirut to check on them. Uh, I mean, obviously most phone lines were, were connections were dead and not knowing if, if dear ones, family members were, were okay. It, it was a very stressful time. 
a few hours later, I was trying to process all of that. And I had a very deep, deep anger in me uh, at the criminal negligence of our political class when we knew that it was an explosion at the port of Beirut and there was ammonium nitrate deposited there. And I was just so angry. And at the same time, paradoxically, it was for me a moment of hope. I thought to myself that there is no way that things can remain the same after such a horrific catastrophe. Something will have to change. Something, I mean, something must change. It's, it was impossible for things to remain the same. This was way too big, way too serious to be flushed down the toilet, like all the other things that happen in, in all the other crises that are hitting our, our country. Um, for me, the most frustrating and the most difficult part, I think, was uh, not being able to be on the streets the next day and help out just with distributing food or uh, or uh, cleaning up the streets. Since with the team at LSCSD, we were working on communicating with our partners to raise the necessary support. We knew that this new crisis, this additional crisis, will take many months of hard work, and we needed to start raising support ASAP. And and so it was this conflict. I was sitting behind my screen uh, in an air-conditioned room, just writing and explaining and, and calling people. Uh, and at the same time, my heart was on the streets with people in Beirut. I just wanted to be there to share in their pain. I just felt I wanted to cry with people on the street and, and or be useful differently. But we knew that our job as, as LSE, as, as a team, we needed to be at the office and do the work we were doing. So it was, it, I, th I think this was the most difficult part from a from a emotional perspective and, and, and not being able to do that. We saw, you mentioned the, the criminal negligence that led to this disaster and you can both correct me, but if I recall correctly, there was a huge amount of ammonium nitrate, like hundreds of tons of explosive material that was seized from a ship and then just left in a building in the port and forgotten about for years. Right. And eventually something caught fire and it blew up. So as you say, just absolutely unbelievable criminal negligence at play here. And, and the port is in the heart of Beirut. It's at the really at the center of the city. Has has justice been served for this criminality? The, the, this is the most infuriating part. More than two hundred people were were killed in the blast. Thousands were injured. Hundreds of thousands lost their homes and businesses. One third of the city was blown apart. Eleven months later, the investigation over the port blast is still ongoing. We were promised quick results. And it's, it's safe to say that we have no hope in the investigation anymore. It is laced with dirty and conspicuous political meddling. And, and the worst part is that when the appointed judge, and, and he was this third choice judge uh, because of political meddling, started examining some of the politicians, they had the audacity to sideline him and replace him with someone else. I mean, what hope is there in the justice system when something that big happens? And, and this, this mirrors the history of non-justice that we have in Lebanon. It's never anyone's fault. It's, there is always someone else to blame. Nobody 
Nobody has ever been prosecuted for the crimes of the Civil War, for example, in, in large due, due to the uh, amnesty law that was passed in 1991. And so we have a heritage of justice not being served. Uh, same goes for the assassination of former Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri and a number of major political and intellectual figures. Uh, the special tribunal for Lebanon was set up with little effect. And, and the worst part is amnesia, avoidance, uh, kicking the can down the road seems to be the, the modus operandi of our, of our justice system. And, and it's, it's very uh, frustrating, demoralizing, and, and we just don't know how uh, things can get better if, if we're just praying for a godly intervention at this stage. And the, and the, the tragedy, I suppose, is compounded by the fact that you spoke of um, a heritage in Lebanon of justice not being delivered. And if I understand correctly, it's precisely that heritage of injustice that the October 2019 uprising aimed at overturning. That That's the, right. That That's the masses right. of people in Lebanon had decided that this system where the elites of every faction protect each other from accountability had to go. And yet almost a year after that uprising began, this disaster came. And almost a year later, there's still no justice. And, and this removes, and this is, this is what I was sharing, people... People feel hopeless at this stage. Uh, if if something that big happened and nothing changed, what what would make things change? Uh, for me, the last remaining hope beyond the godly intervention is the 22 uh, parliamentary elections. If they happen, I, I hope they do happen. Uh, but again, everything is is possible with with the political class we have. If they do happen and we elect the same bunch, I think it's safe to say. We deserve what's happening, and there's no hope for our country as as a people. So this is, I think, the last, really, the last chance. Thank you, Isam, for sharing. Well, you moved to Lebanon because you were called to move to Lebanon. You work with the churches. How how has all this impacted your hope? How has this impacted your faith? Especially that again, you you're in a ministry position, you're in leading ministry position in Lebanon. It's at some point you start. Uh, becoming, uh, you, you have a sort of a cognitive dissonance somewhere. Uh, the Lebanese part of me looks at the whole situation, uh, analyzes the economy or even the political situation and realizes, okay, there is very little hope. Uh, we, we, if, if I want to think about this rationally, uh, the easiest option is, or the best option is to pick up and leave. Uh, the, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, to, to to stay, but then when you look at things from the perspective of faith, um, you you start seeing things differently, and uh, this is where as Christians uh, we are called to be salt and light in these specific situations. It is for a moment such as this that the Lord has called the church to be present and active and serving and and, and witnessing. So it's it's I'm, I always feel torn between these two dimensions. And for example, take the refugee crisis. It's been going on for 10 years. When you look at it from a political perspective, you, okay, it's a complete mess. And uh, refugees are not going anywhere. For a country that is that depends on religious or sectarian balance, 
it's it's a complete mess. But then you look at it from the perspective of faith, and you you see these people as uh, people whom God loves and wants us to serve. And uh, so there is always the macro side of things, looking at it uh, from a macro uh, side. And when you when you come to our job, you have to look at it from a micro side and and look at the difference. The church is making one life at a time, one person at a time, and and stay focused on that. And this is the hope we have that our the work we're doing is not in vain. The work we are doing is not to we we know we won't fix the political situation. We know we won't uh, change the political system or reverse the economic tide. But we do know that our work is very valuable, one person at a time. Thank you, Wissam, for this really powerful description of, of what Lebanon is going through right now and uh, for your, your testimony about uh, your faith and your trust in the Lord. Um, if I can just back up a, a, a step, you mentioned the refugee crisis, and perhaps for our listeners who don't know Lebanon very well, uh, you're speaking of the, the Le- refugee crisis of Syrians into Lebanon, correct? That's right, yes. It's yeah. about a, a million people, I believe, is that... Uh, so- so th- there's a battle of numbers. There are approximately uh, 750,000 or 800,000 officially rev- registered refugees. But the numbers, by conservative estimates, are the, around 1.2, 1.3 million probably. We're not sure. There is a, there's a battle of numbers going on. But in a country of 4 million people, this is just an enormous an That's enormous. huge. Yes, it's it's a very large proportion of of the people living in Lebanon. Yeah, definitely. So, Wissam, you mentioned the churches. You said that the churches learned from the refugees, learned from the people that they didn't want, and these people transformed us, the churches. And how did this translate into hospitality and welcoming church, an open yeah. church? What happened? So there is a cultural element related, and uh, in Lebanon culturally, you can. I mean, Christians have a, and evangelicals have a very unique subculture, and so th- we've been used to doing things and and uh, uh, behaving in certain ways in our churches, and just suddenly having to adjust and adapt to a new way. Uh, for example, having uh, worshiping next to a veiled woman. Uh, who's worshiping Jesus and uh, keeps the veil on, and uh, she is coming with her own set of culture, cultural norms, and and uh, and, and behavior, and just accept that as the a beautiful diversity of the of the body of Christ, uh, and not wanting them to become like us, to behave, talk, and culturally behave like us. And it reminded me of all the uh, discussion in the uh, in the Book of Acts about. Uh, about faith and culture between Greeks and, and, and Jews, and we, we kind of felt that uh, felt that here, uh, but it's been it's been really uh, a, a transformation, uh, accepting others, and and loving them and seeing the diversity of the body of Christ has been very, very refreshing. Uh, one one small story that I just remembered is um, one of our uh, one of the pastors we work with in in the Bekaa, uh he for many many years he was praying for the opportunity to share the gospel with uh with with his surrounding uh, he, he the the church is in a predominantly non-christian area of the bika 
And when the first, uh, when the refugees started coming across the border, uh, if you were just a few kilometers away, uh, and they settled around the church, uh, he was he was still praying for opportunity to uh, to witness. But but then he realized, oh no, Lord, but not these type of Muslims. <laughs> And it, it it just uh, illustrates uh, the all the uh, all the grudge uh, that we've had that was built up throughout the years, and then you see the same pastor uh, sitting on the floor in refugee tents with children all over him, hugging him and 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 jumping on his back. And when we when we do visits with him in the camps and. He's a superstar. Everybody loves him and, and, and respects him and appreciates everything uh, that the church has been doing for them. And so th- this is the kind of transformation that, that you see and that you that is beautiful to, to watch. Uh, and, and we're just grateful that God has been patient with us for so long. We saw you said the pastor said, no, Lord, not not this kind of Muslim. Did, did you right. mean Muslims from Syria? Yes, yes, yes. Because Syria actually occupied Lebanon for 25 years. That's right. That's right. So, Since 1977, and they left in 2005. And so, so there is just yeah. so much pain and, and anger still. And resentment. And resentment. Exactly. And, and, wow. and uh, we, we, when we look at Syrians, we think about the occupation, although the refugees have nothing to do with it. Right, uh, but it's it's just this this buildup of of resentment that that we still had, and this is when we realized that uh, we we did not forgive them. And uh, as Christians, this is our calling, and this is the healing that God brought to our hearts. Th- thank you, thank you for that context. Um, let me ask you a bit about your own work. You you are the chief operations officer of the Lebanese Society for Educational and Social Development, uh, or LSESD. What is LSESD? Well, LSESD is a Lebanese faith-motivated organization. We were founded in 1998 with roots going back to 1955 when when Baptist missionaries came to Lebanon. Today, we have a holistic approach to ministry that seeks to strengthen the local church and serve the local community. And we do so in a variety of ways, uh, restoring hope to the vulnerable and marginalized, building bridges with local communities and advocating and modeling inclusion, and finally nurturing servant leaders and responsible citizens in Lebanon and, and the Middle East. And our hope, our vision is to see communities transformed and churches flourishing both in Lebanon and the MENA region for the glory of God. Thank you, Issam. Uh, full disclosure, I used to work in the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary, which is one of the six ministries of LSESD. So we, myself and Wissam, we were colleagues before I moved to Geneva and worked with the World Evangelical Alliance. So my question to you, from your vantage point, can you share with us how God is working through LSESD and through the churches in Lebanon to bring healing to bring reconciliation and justice. Do you have stories you can share with us of how you're working and what your impact is in this really difficult situation? Specifically, I mean, also, how has the ministry changed in the last, I mean, with COVID, with the Beirut explosion and with the, uh, you know, incredible inflation uh, that's happening? How has things changed also with the ministry? It's a lot of questions. I know we some. Right. 
So LSCSD has a very, if I may say so, unique model for, for development and, and doing ministry. Uh, we, so as, as we Sam described, we have six ministries. One of our ministries is uh, focused on relief and development. And we, we never work, we're, we are not the boots on the ground. We always work through local churches. And, and this, is, this is our belief that uh, the local church is, is here to serve, to be a witness, but also to serve the community. And our role is to enable the local church to, to just do that. Uh, so we, we take care of all the logistics and all the, the back end stuff uh, so that the church may be the hands and feet of Christ uh, wherever they are. Um, and so we, we partner with local churches, determine the needs based on their assessment, and we help them uh, develop a, a project and, and raise the necessary support to, uh, to, to do that. And we help, obviously, with, with the logistics and, and the technical side of, of things. But we always, you will never see any LSCSD logo or Mirath logo anywhere in our projects. It's really the focus is for the local church to be able to uh, serve and to be a faithful witness of the, for the love of Jesus to, to, to wherever they are in, with regard to their local community. Mirath is your relief and... Yes, yes, I'm sorry. I'm, I realize there are a, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, acronyms here. So uh, uh, apologies for that. You're working with the churches. Do you feel the churches are able to keep up with... In a country where there is a sectarian division, there are refugees. So the Lebanese have increasing needs. The refugees have needs. Mm. You know, we're we're a country that has a lot of sectarianism and tribalism in, in, in the response. Are you able and are the churches able to uh, model uh, a Samaritan uh, response in this situation? Well, it's been uh, it's been quite a journey for us and, and for uh, for the churches we, we work with. Uh, we we realized because of Lebanon's history, because of the Syrian occupation, because of, uh, as you said, the sectarian divide that exists, we we realized that we needed to be transformed, uh, and and God used refugees, used uh, people that we avoided to transform us, to change us, to teach us about love and and forgiveness, and so. It's it's been a journey for for us as an organization, for me personally, but also for a lot of our our, our churches. And uh, I must say, the when we first started out, it wasn't easy uh, to uh, to love your neighbor, the neighbor that you've hated or that you despise, or the neighbor that you blame for all the uh, all the wrongs that exist in the country. To, to go from, from this standpoint and, and just love unconditionally, by, for man, this is impossible. But for, for God, everything is, is, is possible. And we realize and recognize that this is God working through us and shaping us and transforming us so that we can love others as he has called us to, to do. Um, we, we still face some challenges and some complications. A lot of our church partners are overwhelmed. They are exhausted. Um, it, it's been, Wissam, you know that it's been crisis on top of crisis. 
it started with the refugees and then with the uh, Lebanese economic crisis, the financial meltdown, uh, COVID-19, the port explosion. It's been just overwhelming for for all of us. And when, I mean, most of our church partners are small churches and are under-resourced with staff and, and personnel. And they have to constantly, constantly change, adapt, respond to new needs, respond to new crises. Um, and we we are trying to support them as much as possible, but we, we also have to make sure that everything is running smoothly. We, we have our own audit mechanisms. And it's just been a lot of pressure and a lot of weight on the shoulders of, of pastors and workers on, on the ground. Um, and I just want to salute all of them for the amazing job that they're doing and the perseverance and endurance that they've that they've shown. But we're we're at a stage where uh, a lot of us are very tired. Thank you, Wissam, for those those really encouraging words. And we certainly pray that the Lord will fortify you and give you strength for all the work that still Thank remains you. ahead. Um, I imagine most of our audience um, are listening in countries that are majority Christian or perhaps a little secular, but uh, interreligious. Um, interactions are not a part of our daily life, perhaps. But right. as you and Wissam have both mentioned, Lebanon is a very diverse country religiously, and there's a lot of, unfortunately, history of sectarian conflict in some parts. Do you have stories about how uh, LSESD or the churches you work with have been able to bridge some of these divides between religious groups, between sectarian groups in Lebanon dur- during this horrible crisis? Right. Uh, just l- if I may mention something, R- religion is an identity marker. Uh, tell me your religion and I'll tell you who you are socially. Uh, I'll tell you what your traditions are. So r- religion is very much intertwined with your civic identity, with your, with, with who you are as a, as a person. You exist legally through your, your religion. So religion is not a secondary thing. It's not something that uh, you pick up on a Sunday morning or on a Friday morning. It's, it shapes your life from, from birth to, uh, to, uh, to death. And, and, and so uh, w- working with along religious lines is, is a very delicate matter, especially since uh, we've never come to a... Um, come to a, a, a real recon, reconciliation after the Lebanese civil war, after the, f- the 15 years of civil wars, and I insist on the wars, on the plural aspect of it. Uh, and we, we just decided to, uh, uh, to have a generalized amnesia, uh, to just forget what happened and not talk about it anymore. And so f- for a very long time, Lebanese, although they, they might live in the same city or in the same neighborhood, they we just avoided one another, Christians and, and, and Muslims. And it was also an us versus them type of, of mentality. Uh, and, and so as, as Christians, as evangelicals, because we're a minority, we, we were able to play a role of bridging the gap, of helping people talk, uh, especially to uh, ABTS through the Khibzu Milih initiative, enabling uh young folks from from similar neighborhoods just to sit and 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 talk about faith talk about politics talk about who they are in a very respectful 
and, and peaceful and peaceful manner. But also through the uh, through the relief work we do, because we work with all faith groups uh, without any discrimination, uh, all the help and the support we provide is unconditional. So people should not, uh, or distribution cannot happen before or after a service. Uh, people can receive aid and support without having to come to church. So and so... Start, to interrupt, but just to clarify, when you say we work with all people, you mean... LSCSD works with the churches who distributes to all. That's right. That's right. We distribute to all faith faith groups uh, with without any uh, any type of discrimination, regardless of religion or or political affili affiliation. And and when we uh, when we advocate for the rights of the most vulnerable, for example, for special needs children, we we do it for all faith groups, uh, since we all of them face the same challenges and difficulties when, when it comes to uh, um, to uh, social issues. Thank you, Wissam, uh, again, for, for sharing. I used to work with LSCSD, so I have great appreciation for everything you're doing. Now you can share with us how can listeners support your work and what is your biggest need right now? I would say the biggest, uh, the, the support is uh, first and foremost through, through prayer for... Uh, renewed energy renewed focus and and, and uh, stamina to uh, to continue on doing the work and not lose hope uh, and then there is obviously the material support and all the information is available on our website uh, lsest.org.org uh, where listeners if, if they feel uh, that they would like to support that they can they can visit our website and, and find all the necessary information um, but yeah, please pray for uh, for our church partners, for the pastors and workers on the ground, uh, who day in day out are doing the best they can to serve others, but also to care for their families, and and pray for our staff that uh, we may uh, remain faithful, motivated, and and encouraged in the Lord despite everything that is uh, happening around us. Thank you, Isam, for sharing all this sharing what God has been doing through you, you, yourself, and you as LSCSD. Thank you so much. Thank you both for, uh, for hosting me on the podcast. And it's been a pleasure to, uh, to share with you. And uh, I hope to see you both in Lebanon soon, inshallah. Inshallah. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this episode. We would be grateful if you share this episode via your social media. And if you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or any other podcasting app to the Didomi podcast. And if you like the episodes, please give us five stars because it will increase our visibility. You can also follow us on Twitter at Didomi underscore CO. And if you have any questions, email us at contact at Didomi.co. Bye bye for now.